Thanks, Cheryl. Good morning, everyone. Let me pray for our time together. Gracious Father, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that your word is powerful, that your word is life-giving, and that through it you made the world and everything in it. We thank you that through your word you've called us out of darkness into your marvellous light, and we pray that you'd help us to hear your word and your voice today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was the October long weekend in 2013. I was driving my car to a scenic location. Jess was sitting beside me and there was an engagement ring in my pocket. And it had been about two years since my first failed attempt to gain permission from my future in-laws to marry their daughter. But I had their go-ahead now and nothing, absolutely nothing, was going to stop me. Until, of course, moments later, I was pulled over by an undercover police car for an infringement on a double line heading down Bellevue Road. Did I mention it was a long weekend? Jess remembers being quite taken aback at how well I took my infringement ticket. I remember thinking, please go away, officer. (laughs) After all, this was not the way the story was meant to go. Well, keep your Bibles open to that first reading, Genesis 25, and as we turn our attention to the first of two episodes at the start of our new series, Genesis 25 to 50, Wrestling with God, we might be tempted to say the same thing. This was not the uh, the way the story was meant to go about Isaac and Rebecca, who take centre stage in the narrative at the beginning of the very next big section in Genesis between chapters 25 to 36. Look with me from verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Well, we last saw these two lovebirds, Isaac and Rebekah, at the end of chapter 24, when, as readers, we felt like the reception crowd farewelling a loved-up wedding couple on their way out to their honeymoon. The narrative mood couldn't have been higher. At the end of chapter 24, the groom, Isaac, long-awaited son of Abraham, the big daddy himself, father of many. Isaac, the recipient of God's threefold, or sorry, Abraham, recipient of God's threefold promise back in chapter 12, land, children, and blessing, as Tash reminded us. The ever-present backdrop of big shoes for Isaac to fill. Well, Mr. Soon-to-be, great nation in the making... That's Isaac. What about his bride? Wonder Woman, Becca, Miss Epitome of Answered Prayer, of whom it was said when she left her home in chapter 24, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. Well, it's not an insignificant bump in the road when in chapter 25, verse 21, we find out, quite counter to our expectations, that Rebecca can't fall pregnant. Now add to this, have a look in verse 20, Isaac is 40 years, we're told, when he marries Rebekah, and if you just jump down to verse 26, he's 60, by the time double trouble arrive at the end of episode 1. 
which if you're slow, a bit slow at maths, I am, 20, is 20 years, 40 to 60, without a Mother's Day for Rebecca. And in a culture where children meant everything, that's painful. Some of us here know that pain well too. In fact, if you just glance, just a moment, if you've got your Bible open at verses, a little bit above, verses 12 to 18, you'll see Ishmael's family are the ancient equivalent of cheaper by the dozen. The joke seems to be on Isaac and it's not so, and his not-so-promising family. Oh, well, this isn't the way the story was meant to go. Yet, as readers of this story so far, there's more than a hint of deja vu between Rebecca's childlessness and her mother-in-law's before her, Sarah, who shared that very same struggle. But whereas, if we've been reading through Genesis up to this point, the narrator back then slowed right down and took nine chapters or so to highlight Abraham and Sarah's struggle to produce an heir, the attention he gives here is very different. Rebecca's barrenness is dealt with in the briefest of ways. Look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. Well, Isaac, to his great credit, turns to the Lord and prays. A very different response to the same dilemma compared to Abraham and Sarah's before him. They took things into their own hands, but he, well, we're not told explicitly, but I take it Isaac prays the full 20 years. It's like one big long wrestle with God, persisting to pray for this child, learning the same lesson as Abraham before him, that God's promised blessing won't be accomplished by mere human effort. God's plan, his promises, advance on his initiative. They advance on his timeline. Well, if the initial bump for the first family is Rebecca getting pregnant, then the even bigger bump comes in verse 22, when Rebecca actually is pregnant. And boy, is she uncomfortable. Look at it, verse 22. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me. Except the NIV translation here is a little soft on both points. The Hebrew word jostled is more literally translated to crush or to oppress. And it's a bit like when our one-year-old Jack makes the mistake of breaking his older brother's Archie's Lego creations. It is no less than an act of war. Well, the battlefield here is no less than Rebecca's womb, and there's not a lot of room in it. Literally, her question translates in Hebrew as a fragment, if so, why I? A translation that makes perfect sense to every woman in her final trimester. And yet this pregnancy is far from a normal pregnancy experience. So she goes to inquire of the Lord. And look at what the Lord said to her in verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Well, God's explanation carries three surprises for Rebecca. Surprise number one, 
Not one, but two. Surprise number two. Not babies, but nations. Surprise number three. The younger will triumph over the older. And in this one verse, we have the interpretative key for explaining the entire Jacob and Esau story that follows. It functions like Genesis 12, 1 to 3 for the whole Pentateuch. It sets the agenda for what is ahead. And we're even pointed ahead a thousand years to Israel's eventual subjugation of the Edomites under King David's leadership. But you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 8 or check out sermon seasonings. But for now, we're back at the beginning. And it's the origin story about the soon-to-be-named Jacob, later renamed Israel. And it's a little bit like, and you'll have to give me license here, the backstory to Harry Potter's scar on his head. The boy who lived, the one who can't be destroyed, the chosen one. If I'm going over your head, that's okay. Well, the point is, Jacob is chosen by God, even though he is the younger child. And every Israelite hearing Genesis read out loud to them knows that's not the way the story is meant to go. Because the older child naturally dominates. They're specially privileged in that culture as their father's heir. The firstborn receives the blessing and the inheritance. And yet, God chooses to turn things upside down. And for the Christian, there's just a ring, a faint one, of familiarity here at the way our God works. Because our own backstory in Christ follows a similar pattern. Listen to how Paul puts it at the start of 1 Corinthians. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. In the words of one commentator, the powerful grace of God is a scandal. It upsets the way we would organize life. Well, God also makes it quite clear, though, too, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, that he is a God who makes choices. God is an electing God. He chooses or elects one person over another. And yet, simultaneously, we'll see as the story of these twins unfold, a genuine interplay between God's election and very real human responsibility for both Jacob and Esau. Which theologically is a bit like reaching the mega bump in the road. Think the unavoidable uber pothole on Victoria Road after lots of rain. But rather than being scary, the doctrine of election, sometimes called predestination, ought to be a great comfort to us, like it was for the Apostle Paul. Listen to how he argues his point about election, not being, not following natural Jewish descent as he reflects on Genesis 25 in Romans chapter 9 from verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, 
not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. In other words, Paul argues God's election, both Jew and for Gentile, doesn't finally depend on works at all. It doesn't even depend on a future foresight of potential faith down the track. No, Paul lands his point quite clearly, uses an illustration of babies not even born yet, and lands in verse 16 on this note, election depends solely on God's mercy. And the reason is because quite apart from God's powerful grace, his scandalous grace, all of us take the path of our first parents before us. Paul's built this argument up at the beginning of Romans chapter 1 to 3, but we see it in Genesis 2. All of us take the path of our first parents, Adam and Eve. We reject God's rule, steal his crown for ourselves, and we want to decide entirely how our story will go. Romans 9 teaches us that election depends solely on God's mercy. And is that humbling for our pride? Yes. That God is so sovereign? Yes. Is it hard to get our head around God's election, his choice of one over the other? Yes. But is it also comforting to know that election doesn't finally depend on our choice of God, but rather his choice of us? Yes. And if that raises any other questions for you, feel free to ask your growth group leader this week, for whom the series title, Wrestling with God, has taken on a whole new meaning in the last two minutes. Well, back to Genesis 25. Notice with me briefly how episode one finishes. We've been told what to expect going forward in verse 23. That's the key. And sure enough, in verse 24... My Labor Day story that I started with earlier on takes on a whole new meaning. As we head into the birthing room with Isaac and Rebecca, we might imagine ourselves as the invisible obstetrician. Twins, check. Boys, check. First one, red, hairy, let's call him Esau, check. Second one, whoa, got a firm grip on that heel, buddy. Jacob it is, check. And things are going to go exactly the way God promised. Because now we know this is the way the story is meant to go. And that's the end of episode one. And before we even get the chance to get the remote, we're on to episode two, which starts in verse 27. With such a rapid pace, perhaps only best understood by the parents of adult children who keep looking around asking the question, what happened to my babies? Well, they grew up. And yet... As you look at your home, they're still here. Well, Baba Esau has become wild hunter man, comfortable with the open country, favoured by his father Isaac, and he doesn't mind a roast or two either, just a hint towards a later chapter. On the other hand, Baba Jacob's grown up and he's Mr. Content to stay at home. By comparison, he's quite happy to watch MasterChef with Rebecca. Although the word used for content to describe Jacob means more naturally blameless or complete, it's the same word used to describe both Noah and Job, pointing to a wholehearted commitment. It's one that just baffles commentators and translators because they don't know quite how to match it up with Jacob, and that's the kind of figure Jacob is. He's a rascal, and yet we spend time wondering, why did God choose him? 
Jacob is favoured by his mother, Rebecca. It's a love that, unlike Isaac, is given no explanation. And, well, all of this is just the background setting for episode two. It lays the groundwork as well for next week as we look at chapter 27, but it also lays the groundwork for what happens next. As all of a sudden, the narrative pace slows right down to glacial pace in the life of these two twins, where we see we begin to see the younger make a slave of the older. Read with me from verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Well, ever true to his name, Jacob, who came out of the room literally clinging on to his brother's heel, sees in this moment another opportunity to try and get one over over his older brother. And like a very experienced player of Monopoly, playing a first-time player, well, Jacob capitalizes over his drooling older brother. Verse 31, Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said which is almost certainly an exaggeration. Esau is not dying. But right now he's ready to put the needs of the immediate moment ahead of any other consideration. What good is a birthright to me? Now this birthright is probably a little bit different to the blessing, although the Hebrew words sound quite similar. Bekora, birthright, and Baraka, blessing. But the blessing is going to be the focus next week in chapter 27. So I think it's right to distinguish them. And yet maybe there's overlap too. But the firstborn right idea fills out as a concept as we look at a couple of verses. Follow with me. For example, in Genesis 43, 33, we see culturally that the firstborn was given special privileges. Joseph decides to sit each of his brothers down in order of their ages. Later in Genesis 49, verse 3, Reuben is described as being literally the first fruits of his father's strength. Later again, in Exodus 22, verse 28, we learn that the firstborn was to be dedicated to God. And then, perhaps most significantly, later in the law, Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, instructs that when the inheritance of a man is divided up, the firstborn should receive a double share of all that he has. So that's some of what's at stake here. When we come to verse 33, Jacob said, "'Swear to me first. And there's a kind of ruthlessness that comes through in the way Jacob speaks in this episode. But so Esau swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Esau gave some bread and what? A lovely rich lamb shank red stew? No, not even close. Jacob gave him some bread and some lentil stew. And unless you're a vegetarian, we're supposed to be gobsmacked. Notice next the quick succession of verbs that follow. Esau ate and drank and then got up and left. Eat, drink and be merry. But finally, the narrator tells us how we are to interpret this whole incident right at the very end. When he says to us, so Esau despised his birthright. Esau has not waited And neither has he valued what is important and significant. No, he treats his birthright cheaply. And in so doing, Esau despises himself 
as well as his God. And it should stand out to us that this little comment is added by the narrator because it's very unusual. As you read through Genesis, there is so much moral activity that is not commented on at all. The narrator gives us his point of view. We might want to write the story and add, and Jacob was a jerk, but that's not there. Esau is unworthy, and he's also profoundly stupid. Which takes us briefly to the second of only two New Testament passages that directly comment on chapter 25 in Genesis. The first one was Romans 9, we looked at that briefly. The second one we heard read earlier, Hebrews 12 verse 15. And it serves to warn us as Christians not to fall short. Listen to it again. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Esau is being presented as the what-not-to-be example in contrast to the pilgrims of faith in Hebrews 11. And it's a sermon warning to you and I too. We are not to be short-sighted the way Esau was. And the way to avoid being short-sighted the way Esau was is to remember, to remember what we have in Christ and how it matters above all else. In Christ, we have a story, a story that is altogether different. Do you remember how John starts his gospel reminding us of the birthright that Christians are given? In chapter 1, verse 12, he writes, Yet to all who did receive him, to Christ the Word, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Which means that if you are a Christian here today, I want you to remember as you leave this morning who you are in Christ. That it doesn't matter if you rocked up this morning and felt like your story is not going the way it's meant to go because you are joined to a story that goes far back, far back further than what we often think of. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You and I, as we think back on this story that was given to Israel to remind them of their origin story, we have a true backstory too. And it is a backstory that helps to teach us both what we can let go of and also what never to let go of. I'm reminded of Jim Elliot who famously said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Esau got his life's priorities wrong. He lived in a moment, and when it counted most, he lost sight of what mattered eternally. What about you and I? Today, tomorrow, this week, in the moment of temptation, will we take seriously Jesus' challenge in Matthew 6.33 
But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Let me pray for us. Father, we do give you thanks this morning for the reminder that you have made us and that for those in Christ, you have chosen us. And we pray that we would take great reassurance from the grace of being joined to our Saviour. In him we have already died. In him our sins have already been paid for. In him we have a living hope in his resurrection. In him we have a certain hope of a future inheritance to come. Help us to remember our story in Jesus' name. Amen.